0: Well, it's good to be with you here this morning, and glad you made the choice to join us. We're uh, continuing this week in our study through the book of Romans, and as a reminder, that's a a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And we're working just week by week through the different chapters. And this week we're in chapter eleven. If you want to join me in that, you would be helpful just to follow along. Just for those of you that are that are newer, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair in front of you, and uh, you can. Follow along, we're on page 946, trying to make that as convenient as possible. Thinking about this morning's topic and uh, talking about the, the topic of trust, and I titled this morning's message, Can I Trust Him? And really think about one of the greatest obstacles or challenges we have in our life is figuring out who we can trust and who we don't trust, right? That's one of the the challenges, even if you think about our political race right now, one of the great challenges, who can we trust, who who do we not trust? It's one of the things that we have to navigate through, and even thinking just personally about that, think through seeing different people that you know that have been burned by people, and you're like, oh man, I want to avoid that. And uh, you think of even your own personal experience, each one of us has different scars, some more than others, about being betrayed, having trust betrayed, and so for us to try to, Figure out how to determine who is it that I trust is an important thing, an important crossroads in many of our experiences. And this morning, looking about our our topic, it's really addressing the same idea, figuring out who it is we can trust. Because what happens is when we've seen enough people burned over the years, it leaves us a little bit calloused and a little bit not unsure and, and questioning how you interact with people. It leaves us with dead bolts on our doors. It leaves us with a lawyer on our speed dial. It leaves us with extended contracts before we agree to anything because you're like, man, I'm not sure who I can trust. Me and my kids have been watching this show on HGTV. Maybe you've seen it. A Million Dollar Rooms is the name of it. I, uh, I've gotten sucked into it, and it's, it's a silly thing. It's basically a tra- guy travels around and looks at different homes at these uh, just ridiculously elaborate rooms. In this one show we were watching actually just yesterday afternoon, he's in one particular home, and so, some are cool and some are like, oh, way over the top. Well, this particular house was way over the top and the person doing the tour is, is showing the different furniture and they're like, oh, well, this painting's $600,000 and these chairs are, are etched in gold and, and all of these like elaborate, this rug was $470,000 and you're like, really? And um, usually it's pretty ugly stuff. But it's fascinating because the guy that was doing the tour with them, he asked the guy, he's like, well, well are, what do you do? Aren't you nervous of somebody breaking in and stealing some of this stuff? he's like no 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 because i have this and he pulled out of his hands a a quick button that he pressed and all these like wall like cement or whatever they were steel wall things dropped down and it became automatically like this fort knox room and you're like wow well that doesn't seem like my living room you know like it it doesn't seem like i'd really enjoy living in that environment not sure who it is you can trust for us this morning, the, the reality is is that distrust, if we're not careful, trickles into our spiritual lives as well. We're like, man, I don't I don't know if I can trust God. I I've, I've been burned by some people that claim to be Christ followers. I've been I I I don't know. Can I trust the God of the Bible? That's really the the the, the message that we're looking at this morning. What Paul's addressing that question. And the approach that he takes on it is he says, can we trust God as to whether or not he's been faithful to his chosen people, the Jewish nation? Has he been faithful to them? Because if he hasn't been faithful to them, man, his chosen people, then how can I trust him? This, this week, we're going to see, just as he unpacks here, it's probably the most direct passage speaking about the nation of Israel and his response to it of anywhere in the New Testament, and he answers that question, can he be trusted as it relates to his chosen people? Let me pray before we dive in. God, we thank you for this chance to be together in your house and to be celebrating you even through song this morning. and such a joy to see all all the kids here and so many people being impacted by your word and the influence that it has on our lives. We ask now that you'd speak to us through this text, that you'd allow us to put the different things of our week, the craziness of our schedules on the shelf, and we'd be able to actually pay attention to hear what you have for us. I believe that you have something for each one of us here this morning. I pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd be great, and I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Looking in uh, chapter 11 of Romans, I'm going to just start in uh, verse 1. And this is Paul making the case that Israel is only partially on the sidelines. Verse 1 it says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? It's a fair question. Look at Paul's response By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. But if if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. It's a pretty intense section of scripture. We'll kind of break that down. The first thing is the question that he starts with, what does he ask? He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? In other words, what I started with this morning, has he rejected his people? Because if he has rejected his people, then we probably shouldn't trust him, right? What he points to is that question, are they no longer a part of his future plans? If you think about the Old Testament and all that's written in it, it has so many promises to the nation of Israel, promise after promise, and some of those promises are based on their obedience or disobedience. Are you tracking with me? Some of those promises have nothing to do with them solely on God's integrity, that God's going to stick to his word and do what he says. So you kind of have both camps, but here the, is the, the issue, this is the crossroad and why the question comes up, is that not all of the things that were promised, that were based strictly on God's part, have been fulfilled, so therefore, God can't be done with Israel yet. Are you following with me? So that, that's his argument, he starts out by saying, his response, he says, by no means, by no means, that's not possible. Notice uh, that's kind of a redundant phrase in the book of Romans. Anytime he asks a tough question, that's always the same exact thing that he says, by no means with an exclamation point. Look, look through it. We've addressed it probably 20 times already already in the book of Romans. I was thinking about that because my, my family teases me because I say have some redundant phrases Maybe you guys can bring to to mind something that you hear me say often. One that my my family teases me about is I always say, okay, we're going to unpack this section of scripture. Have you ever noticed me say that? And I have specifically tried to not say that, but I keep on every single week. I'm like, oh, as soon as I say it, I'm like, yep, there it goes. I said it again. I said it again. I can't break it. I, I think of that as Paul as he's writing this, but here you see a bit of his passion because every single time it's with the exclamation point he's just like no you don't get it it's not possible that he's that he's forgotten or or left behind his people it's not possible but hence the exclamation mark and even if you think about today even the existence of Israel existing on a map being on our planet is a testimony to God's faithfulness did you know that the the nation of Israel is the side of the size of New Jersey that it's sitting right in the middle of, of uh, surrounding countries that all hate Israel and would love to see all of them die like are, are you serious how does that continue to exist do you watch the news and how often everything revolves around the nation of Israel? How much uh, happens just in that small corner of our planet? It's all a testimony that God has not forgotten His people. In fact, First Samuel 12, 22 in the Old Testament says, "...for the Lord will not forsake His people." He's, he's held to that over the, from generation to generation as all of their peers have disappeared and, na- and their nation continues to exist. In 1948, Israel established as an independent nation again. is just an a, just a unbelievable reality. So Paul is crystal clear. So what does he make as his case for why he's faithful to them? He says, he's faithful to Israelites because why? He's been faithful to me. This is Paul talking. You remember Paul... His, his testimony, what was he committed to? He's committed to killing Christians before he, met, before he met God on the road to Damascus. So he's like, if he was going to be unfaithful to anyone, it would have been him. So he's saying, I myself, as an Israelite, Paul speaking, am a testimony that God hasn't forgotten his people. He's not forgotten his people. He points to another in that section, another bleak point in israel's history all the way in the old testament the story of elijah you remember that that where the nation primarily was all worshiping baal which was kind of a fascinating story in the old testament where they're all worshiping baal and baal was the god of the who can tell me who's the god of the weather the rain and so what did god do he said actually i'm going to make it stop raining for three years just to show you who the true god is Finally, God uses Elijah to draw the nation back to himself. It's a fascinating story, but he says, he points to the the interaction between Elijah and God at the point in the story where Elijah's like, man, I don't see anybody on the planet that still is following me. And what was God's response to him? He said, you see it in the text there, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He's saying to them, I've kept... A remnant, a remnant. By definition, a remnant is a few remaining after a disaster. I think that's an interesting definition. So he said, throughout history, that's how God has operated. He's kept a remnant, in a few, a group of a small amount that have been protected while the rest have rejected. And that's what's happened here. And so he's saying, even present day, there's still a remnant. Even a lot of times people are like, well, didn't, didn't all Jewish people reject Jesus? Absolutely not. You read about the early church, and first there's 3,000 saved at Pentecost. Then it describes 5,000 shortly after. And so in that time period, although many had rejected Christ, not all had rejected Christ. And it's similar even today, right? There's some that have said, no, I don't think he's the Messiah. And, and there's, But there's many. We have a whole organization, Jews for Jesus. There's tons of Jesus following Jews, even present day. It's how God operates. He preserves a remnant. What does he describe there? He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat it, though. He doesn't deny the fact that many have hardened their hearts to him, and their eyes have been darkened. It's actually interesting, he uses the phrase, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. not a typical word we see in in scripture, but the word there is the idea of drugged sluggishness, unable to recognize or respond. So that's what he's saying. He's like, man, that's that's the state that they're in, but that's not where they're going to stay. That's not where they're going to stay. Much like the, the Messiah's story parallels his people's story, he was brought low to what? to ultimately be lifted up. And that's the story of Israel. Take a look in the next section where the season of re- rejection is only temporary. Verse 11. This is a long section right here, so hang on tight. Uh, so, so it says, "'So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? "'Again, by no means. "'Rather, through their trespass, "'salvation has come to the Gentiles "'so as to make Israel jealous. "'Now if their trespass means riches for the world,' And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. See his passion in his heart for his brothers and sisters there. It says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If though offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Concluding here, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You guys tracked with that? You followed every single part of that and got that down? Can, can I just leave now? Or should we? Or should we unpack it a little bit? And so, um, sorry about that. Let let let's uh, let's let's think through this text. A lot's going on there. A lot's happening. It says that in that they did they stumble in order that they might fall. In other words, are they beyond reach? Have they stumbled so far that there's no way for somebody to be to be reached? And he's saying again, he uses the same term: by no means. By no means. Verse 12 actually refers, it says, in, now if their trespasses means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean?s There's a day on the horizon where things change drastically. It's provided, though, the opportunity for Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Anybody that's not Jewish. So anybody that's, some in here are Jewish, some in here are not Jewish. Gentiles would be anybody that's not uh, that's not a Jew, and what, is it, what does it say in that, in that text? It's saying He says, if it wasn't for the rejection, us, the Gentiles, somebody that's not Jewish, wouldn't have come to know God and be, have a relationship restored. And you're like, well, how does that work? That doesn't even make sense. I think it's fascinating in Acts 18.6, Paul speaking. He says this at the beginning of the church. He says, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul, even in his ministry, when he was rejected by many Jews, not all, remember, not all, many Jews, he said, you know what? I'm going to change direction and I'm going to pursue reaching out to Gentiles. So that was the start of Gentiles even being introduced to the church. And so that provided the opportunity for our ancestors or anybody that's not Jewish that's embraced Christ to be saved so the the idea though is multiple multiple times in the section he talks about jealousy Says part of God's strategy is by setting them aside was to create jealousy for ultimately bringing them back points out that the tragedy of their rejection will be surpassed by the glory of them finally at some point coming to know him Kind of like present day when there's somebody that you're just like, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that person will ever, ever embrace Christ. I can't imagine them ever bending a knee. I can't uh, imagine them ever. It's, it's, it does what? It points glory to God saying, oh, I can't believe he did that to, with somebody that seemed impossible to reach. It's a, fun, it's a fun experience to watch God do his work. But so the idea here, he refers to first fruits showing that God can't renege on his promises to their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. So in other words, saying, don't count them out. I don't know if anybody else grew up like me watching the the Rocky movies. Anybody else watch some of the Rocky movies over the years? We're in church, but we can still admit it. One of my my favorite things about the Rocky movies is it didn't matter how beat up he was, like how many times he got punched in the face. I mean, his face was a literal punching bag in these movies. It didn't matter how many times he got punched, how many times he got knocked down. What did you know? You're like, he's getting back up. He's knocked down, but he's not out. He's knocked uh, knocked out, but he's not out. Like regardless of what happened, you knew he was going to be back in the fight, right? It's kind of, you knew the ending before it even happened because you're like, I I know what's going to happen here. I know what's going to happen next because every time he gets punched in the face, he gets back up. He gets backed up. And I was thinking about that as a picture uh, uh, of Jews in response to Jesus Christ. Man, it might seem like they've been punched. They've been been beat up. Actually, the the the, the nation of of Israel has had a pretty tough existence in the last hundred years. I mean, it's it hasn't been an easy road if you think about even with Nazi occupation you can imagine what they've experienced and you're saying man but they've been knocked down but, knocked, but not knocked out. Verses 18 through 20 though he gives a warning to those who are not Jewish saying be careful though don't get arrogant thinking that you have replaced them as God's chosen people. Don't get arrogant thinking that you have replaced them. And he starts to tell the story about, what does he point to as his illustration that he's talking about? What, what thing in nature? All right, there you go. Somebody, an olive tree. How many of you know a lot about olive trees? You guys feel like pretty not? Let me, t- let me tell you a little bit about olive trees this morning. So olive trees in that time period, in that region, that was like a a super precious commodity. Like having an olive tree was a source of income. It was a source of food. One, the olives could be eaten. Two, they would be squeezed and used for their... Oil. We still cook with olive oil today. You probably have some in your cupboard at home. In that day and time, it was even more of a prevalent uh, resource and very important to their, their culture. And so it's something, as he's talking about that, that they would all understand. And there's two different types that he just addresses in here, two different types of, of olive trees. Wild and cultivated so a wild one would just be i mean it, they're easy definitions a wild one would just be one growing out in the wild on a, a field you see oh there's an olive tree they, it's fascinating that they live for hundreds of years a very durable plant existing in that environment but a, a, a wild one wouldn't really produce much fruit in fact not much at all. And so, but a cultivated one would be one that would be pruned and taken care of and, and and maybe one that you'd have in your own personal yard or on your own personal property that you would take care of this tree and they would bear much fruit. So what he's saying here is he's saying, oh, and here's the, oh, here's the interesting thing. So somebody that would be, uh, what's a person that takes care of plants? An arb. Yeah, one of those words. Okay, so one of those things uh, is a person that would know about grafting in a branch. So what you do with an olive tree, so you might have a a wild one that's living outside and, and it's very durable, has great roots and a great system, but producing no fruit. So what they do is take the branch of a cultivated one and they would graft it in to a wild one. Are you tracking with me? so that then the wild one that's durable and lasting hundreds of years can all of a sudden start bearing fruit. So he's giving an illustration here of two different types of, of trees, the wild one and the cultivated one. Which do you think the Gentiles were? Wild ones. So go ahead, tell the person next to you, you're a wild one. Like that, that's, a, that, that's, the, that's the idea here, is that we were grafted in To what was already established there for thousands of years as the cultivated tree. And he's saying that's how it works. You were brought in, so don't get arrogant. Don't get arrogant. Just because, uh, just because some have rejected Christ, don't start to think that you got, got to replace them just because you were grafted in. A lot of times in our arrogance, we can think you know, like foolish thoughts can start to sneak in even about how Israel and Jewish people respond to Jesus Christ. But he's saying, don't get arrogant about that because you were there just, you're just along for the ride and it's a blessing that you snuck in. Let's remember that, right? You're, you're just along for the ride. It's a blessing you snuck in. I, my wife teases me because I'm kind of fascinated about uh, this whole plant thing. Ever since I've moved to California, I've uh, loved the, the succulents. I don't know if you guys have those at home. I'm just like, we don't have those in the Midwest. Like nothing like that exists. And, and I was at my, my neighbor's house, uh, Alex and Sheil, and I was talking to them. And I was, I was talking to them. They had a tree in their living room. And in their tree, it was, it was like, I don't know, about like eight feet tall. And I was like, man, that's really cool. That's, that's sharp. And he's like, listen, he said, the interesting thing about this tree, I don't even know what kind it is. Maybe you can tell me. So he said, he said, you can cut off one of the branches and just stick it in dirt and it'll start growing. I'm like, get out of here. That's not how it works. When I cut off a branch of a a tree, like try to stick it in dirt, it doesn't work like that. Like he's like, no, seriously. And the whole time I thought, he's just messing with me because he's known to mess with people. And so, so the whole time there, I, I, he's like, trust me, we're going to do it. And so I, he cut off a branch and I'm like, I'm a sucker for taking this. I'm going to go home. I'm going to stick it in this, this pot of dirt. And so I do it. I'm like, all right, we'll give it a couple weeks. Well, about a week into it, I see, man, that thing seems to be like, Taking root, it's grabbing hold. Is that a shoot coming out of the top of it? Before you know it, that's the that's the thing that started with one branch in my living room. So every time somebody comes to my house, I tell this story because I'm so blown away with that. Like I know it doesn't take much to impress me. Uh, you guys are like, wow, you need to get out more. <laughs> it's true. Um, but but uh, but but here's the here's the idea here that he's reminding the Gentile people, he's like, listen, you are, this is verse 24, this is contrary to nature. This, is, this isn't how it works. You don't ever take a wild branch and try to connect it to a cultivated tree. One, it physically can't work. Two, it doesn't make any sense. But that's what grace is. That's what grace is. That's what God has done. He's taken us as the wild branches and connected it. And at the end of his illustration, he says, but don't be surprised that a cultivated one, how easily they'll be grafted back in. How easily they'll be grafted. As the Jewish people respond to the gospel and respond to who Jesus Christ is, it shouldn't shock us that there's a day that's coming that they'll be naturally and easily reconnected but what's the hinge first it's in verse 23 it says if they don't remain in unbelief if they don't remain in unbelief it's still there's no s- a special provision it's still the same way to god through jesus christ through simple belief in him let's look at verse 25 just as we wrap up in this last section that they're so we saw that they're, they're that their sideline is only temporary it's only partial. Now we're going to see that this all hasn't been on accident. Verse 25 says, "'Lest you be wise in your own sight, "'I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. "'A partial hardening has come upon Israel "'until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. "'And in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. "'The deliverer will come from Zion. "'He will banish ungodliness from Jacob.' And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Starts with another warning there as he wraps up, just warning not to be arrogant or wise in your own eyes or own sight. He wants them to be aware of a mystery. And he tells exactly what the mystery is. It's what we've been talking about this morning. What is the mystery? There's been a temporary partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of Gentiles are saved, but God still has a plan for Israel. In fact, in verse 26, you see there, it says, In this way, all Israel will be saved. There's actually a lot of debate about the interpretation of that verse to think, does that mean every single Jewish person on the planet will be saved? We don't, we don't know exactly how to respond to that. Remember back in Romans 9 that it explained that it wasn't meaning everyone that's born Jewish is necessarily saved. It still comes down to whether or not they've embraced Christ determining that. So we're not sure exactly, but either way, regardless of how you interpret it, just know that a day is coming when many, many Jewish people will be saved. And that must have made Paul feel so much better being someone that's Jewish himself. He's like, oh man, that is a day he's looking forward to. He explains the whole idea. He says in the same way that they've been in disobedience or they, they're living in disobedience, don't forget you were that same way. It's only by God's grace he pulled you out of disobedience. So why would you think that he wouldn't do the same thing? What I find is fascinating, each section of scripture you read, you learn a little bit more about God's character and how he deals with people. When usually you think of how you deal with somebody and when somebody's disobedient or rejects you or responds to you, your natural response, is it mercy? Is it mercy? Is it, is it grace? Is it forgiveness? No, we're, we're in a car, culture, in a world, you, you, do, you wrong me, and you're going to get what's coming to you. But here, he's saying, no, God operates differently. He responds to disobedience and rejection differently. He responds to rejection and says, no, that's just an opportunity for my mercy to shine all the more brightly. It's an awesome picture of how God operates. His disobedience provides the opportunity, or our disobedience provides the opportunity to show his mercy. He's, as he's kind of wrapping up this idea, and it's been a section of about three, three chapters that he's talked about explaining how salvation works, and this is his final conclusion. I find it interesting how he concludes the section kind of like he almost pauses as he's, as he's thinking about how this works. It's almost like his mind is blown. He's like, no way. He starts breaking into a doxology, which in our terms would be a song. I don't know if you guys have that person in your life that all of a sudden in the middle of whatever they're doing, they might break into song. You guys have that person, you'll say something and they'll start singing and you're like, am I the only one, my sister Kathleen? Uh, But, 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 but anyway, if you have that person, I kind of think maybe Paul is that guy. That guy, he's, it's, it's jotted his mind to say like, whoa, he is not like us. He's not like us. What, what does he say there? He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He concludes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. His response to all of this is, man, You are awesome. You are trustworthy. So The question that we started with this morning, is God trustworthy? Can I trust him? The answer here is emphatically yes. The question is, will we trust him? Kind of neat seeing the the theme throughout the Old Testament, the conclusion that different people have come to in their lifetime. I I did a a quick study on that uh, throughout the Old Testament. First, you can put that on the screen there. As Joshua, at the end of his days, this was his conclusion, said, Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised you. David, in Psalm 31, 5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Solomon, considered the most wise person to ever live, 1 Kings 8 says, Not one word has failed. Of all his good promise, for so this is Paul and Titus here, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. All of these men that we elevate and hold in high regard have all come to the exact same conclusion that He can be trusted, that He can be trusted. what's your conclusion? What's your conclusion about him? Does your life reflect that conclusion about him? Do you live as though, yes, I trust him? Or do you live in fear? Do you live in war, worry? What is your, does, your, does your life actually reflect what your conclusion is about our God? Let me pray for us as we wrap up. God, we thank you so much for your word and how you've proven yourself time and time again for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel, that you've proven to be faithful And you not just have proven to be faithful, but you you promise to remain faithful. And because of that reality, those of us that aren't Jewish can cling to that aspect of your character, that you are faithful and trustworthy. My prayers for each person in this room as they evaluate whether they've already embraced Christ or not, either way they they come to a conclusion that, oh, maybe he is trustworthy, maybe he does have a plan. God, I thank you that you do. I thank you that you are inscrutable, that you're unknowable, that that you're beyond us, that your plan is different than ours, that you respond to disobedience differently than we do. It's only because of that that we're able to be here this morning, that you respond to our disobedience with your mercy. We love you and praise you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. can I trust him? The answer emphatically is yes. Pray that you live in that trust this week. I'd encourage you if you're newer here, we'd love to have you join us for our newcomer's lunch right after the service. Otherwise, have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you.